Hello, welcome to Podcasting is Praxis. Uh, this is our special non-UK, non-British episode dedicated to what's going on across the pond. And today we're looking at the Bernie Sanders campaign and what happened. A bit of an autopsy. Uh, we've got a very special guest joining us today from Trash Future uh, is Nate. Hello. Cool. How's it going? Everything okay over down south? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, beautiful weather uh incipient apocalypse uh yeah i mean to be fair i i I got to have the one-two punch of bernie's campaign ending and then the labor report leaking so in terms of my (laughs) political ability to see a better future uh not been a great two weeks but i mean i've been vaping a lot (laughs) (laughs) okay uh so awesome uh glad to have you here my name's elijah uh we've also got alistair hi yeah this is my second episode in a week actually which is uh a bit unusual um but it's been it's been an unusual few weeks <laughs> um that it has yeah <laughs> and rob how uh, you doing yeah i'm good i'm still uh hiding out with my fiance here in lovely switzerland um and the weather is amazing and there's a terrace here which i don't have in my place um at home so i'm very happy as insofar as you can can be happy given the you know circumstances <laughs> and here's me living on the top floor of my seven floor block of flats without a garden and just uh <laughs> begging for the sweet release of death from this hot box of sweat <laughs> all right well um i mean it's okay the weather up here is like a nice 15 degrees it's nice and cool but i'm i'm very far north so Anyway, um, let's dive right in. Bernie Sanders, uh, how are we all feeling? Is anyone still like a a, a, a giant red hot ball of fury and rage, or or have we all kind of calmed I'm, down a little bit? Well, I've I've just been f- uh, following Mehdi Hassan on Twitter, so I think that it's all time for us to come together <laughs> and support, you know. <laughs> Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden. Oh yeah, it's re- oh, I, I, I used to follow him because he did. He, I found that he did tweet some interesting stuff, and then it's just like, dude, shut the fuck up! Like this is just tedious. Um, but I mean, it sort of it sort of comes in waves for me. Like uh, just thinking about both uh, Corbyn and Sanders is just like, oh, we <laughs> we were so close on two fronts and. Well, I was going to say it slipped through our fingers, but it was sort of like battered out of our hands by a laughing bunch of centrist cunts, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I would say in terms of discussing Mehdi Hassan and just in general, Clinton brain strikes people, no matter how cool you think they are. <laughs> at some point, <laughs> if if they get the kiss of death and they get Clinton brain, there's just no saving them. Oh, God. That's a, my yeah. favorite. I think my favorite Mehdi Hassan take was... Uh, the left will say that criticizing Israel isn't anti-Semitic, but they will now say that criticizing China for the virus is racist. Racism is fine if it's if it's against the Chinese. After all, they ate bats and gave us the virus. That seems to be the um, the yeah. new track for for the liberals. I mean, this the, the never-ending ability for American liberals, and you know, to a less a similar extent British ones, but I'm really seeing it in the US to just turn on a fucking dime about their their deeply held principles, right? We can't support Bernie because he's he's a sexist. He said sexist things about Elizabeth Warren, but uh, Joe Biden is under a false rape accusation and that's all fine and that's not a problem, right? And how yeah, dare yeah. The, Trump... The, the rape accusation's been really spectacular because it is literally the exact same people that... Um... 
when uh, uh, what's what was the name again? Jennifer Ford, I think, when she came forward about with her accusations about Brett Kavanaugh, like the exact same Christine people. Christine Blasey Ford. Thank Christine you. Blasey Christine Ford. Yeah. Ford yeah. yeah, yeah, who who like we must believe all women always, and it's like no, but not that woman. You know, <laughs> I think there's I mean, one I, thing that uh, I was gonna say, sorry, Nay, I was just going to say if there's one thing we've learned about liberals is that they do not have any convictions whatsoever if it's even slightly to the left of where they currently are. I mean, also, I would say too that it, it, it's it's shocking to me the extent to which this has been a bad faith exercise because even if you were to try and explain it away by saying that things changed when. Harvey Weinstein was accused and then convicted and imprisoned, and then all this this sort of cascading effect of people in America uh, coming to terms with the fact that we've just openly tolerated sexual harassment and sexual assault from powerful men from for a very long time. But then to turn around and, and be like, "Oh, this stuff doesn't matter because it's all made up." Uh, by the way, we're you know we're we're the good guys, just like just like Bill Clinton, the best president we ever had. Who um, conveniently, please don't <laughs> look any deeper about sex stuff with him. Uh, I promise you, it's all good. Like it's Bill Clinton did nothing wrong, apparently. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting. There is an interesting sort of parallel to draw because you get the same thing here in the UK with um, Tony Blair. Well, like, if you say anything about PFI or the Iraq War or anything along those lines, it's like, yeah, but, you know, he was the greatest, pre- he was the greatest prime minister we ever had. It's the, and it's the same people. It's like a, yeah, just, just on, the, on, on the sad UK side of things. One of the things that's really funny about the Clinton presidency, and I don't want to derail the topic, but I'll just point this out, is that in a way, him being horny may have been the one thing that saved Social Security from privatization. Because yeah. I, because he asked, <laughs> that was absolutely on the legislative agenda. Once he was reelected in 1996, the, the plan was to use that Congress to try and privatize yeah, Social Security. Do the, do the and, grand bargain, right? That was going to be the whole, the oh, whole thing. fucking grand bargain. <laughs> and and so, but then the, then the Republicans smelled blood in the water and realized that they could probably they thought they could achieve more politically by going after him because of the Lewinsky affair and, and him perjuring himself than the original plan, which was to cooperate and privatize Social Security. Uh, so yeah, basically, <laughs> uh, it, it's fucked. It's craven. It's completely amoral. But him being unable to not wield his power as the most powerful man on the planet over a 22 year old intern and being incredibly horny may have <laughs> saved the retirement of countless elderly God, people yeah. in America. I fucking love politics, man. This is, it's, it's some great shit. Awooga. Um, <laughs> but it does put you so, sort of in mind that if you think about this, you know, Clinton to Clinton to, to Obama to everything. And like, I was, I was thinking this week, cause when, when we said we were going to do this, I was thinking like, these primaries, and I know, like the Iowa vote wasn't that long ago, but like the, it fucking feels, feels like it. Though. Like <laughs> Jesus it has Christ. just been forever and a half. Like I, I, I can't remember a day when it wasn't some kind of primary something for two years at an end. It's extraordinary. Well, that's just the American system, though, isn't it? It's continuous churn, political this, that, or the other. Whether it's the Senate, whether it's Congress, or if it's just like local legislatures. Yeah, but it's it, has, just... <laughs> it has become much more sort of virulent and mental in the age of Trump. But also, I think another thing to point out, too, is just the ubiquity of 24-hour news cycles now. That, I mean, even when mm-hmm. I was younger, I mean, I'm I'm 35, I remember the, the 96 election quite well. It was wild, but a lot of it was driven by newspaper coverage, and it just wasn't as intensely up to the minute, you know, one thing after another. 
And I think you're right that basically as soon as the election is over, basically, or at least as soon as the inauguration is over, then the next thing is, well, what's going to happen in the midterms? And it just, and then after that, it's like, well, what's going to happen in the primary and the midterms? Like it's, or the the next, the next uh, congressional election as well. Like it's, we are constantly fixated on, you know, there'll be a poll on potential primary candidates, you know, on like January 21st, you know, the day after the inauguration. It's insane. Uh, and I think a lot of that is just driven by, I mean, primarily CNN, but also just like other news networks need to constantly fill time with politics news. And it's, I don't think it's healthy for American democracy, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, I do think the UK system of having a short election period is better, but also I think that, uh, my, my understanding of the UK system is a little fuzzy, but as I understand it, it's a lot more annoying and bad now after the fixed terms parliamentary act, uh, than it was say prior (laughs) to that. Yeah, basically it's, um, now it doesn't matter how terrible or weak a government is. Um, it is just going to limp on, as we saw with Theresa May, just limp on indefinitely until they decide actually now is the time to um, call an election. And uh, well, <laughs> it would have been a lot better for the whole, probably for the whole process, if the um, if the government had collapsed on like under its own steam rather than uh, kept artificially alive by that one terrible piece of legislation to keep her. To make sure the Lib Dems don't um, just decide to collapse the government during the coalition years. Mm. What's amazing to me is is just how quickly you see the collapse of the entire idea, right? The ideological underpinning and justification for the way the UK constitutional system works with an unwritten constitution, uh, a, a system of government and democracy that's based entirely on gentlemen's agreements and tradition, and we've always kind of done it this way, and how that just falls completely by the wayside. With when you have one excuse not to have to do that, right? When it's no, when you have an excuse to not disband the government if your budget doesn't pass, if you have an excuse to not disband your government after losing a a, a massive policy platform vote, right? Stuff like that. Theresa May kept losing and losing and losing these these these, these central votes to her policy, to her campaign, to her very you know reason for being in government, and nothing happened. Um, and it's because the UK is not a real democracy by any means, <laughs> but it's it's it's. No, but to, it pretends it, to sorry, be. Just yeah. to turn it back to where we were supposed to be. Uh, turns out neither is the United States. I mean, it's sort of yeah. It's, it follow, follow, it so, has it have more of an ability to follow the sham forms of a democracy. Um, well, so yeah, so we're talking about the, the Bernie Sanders campaign and the to connect it to that point there about real democracy or unreal democracy. The first thing I think that we could point out as a little sort of connecting wire is that the Democratic Party uh, has a, I believe they have a Supreme Court ruling that says they can do whatever they want in their internal primary elections. There's no mechanism for an external check on on what they're doing. Am I, I think I've got this right. They I can mean, that, arrange that... it any way they want to. I was going to say, because that sounds very similar to what we saw with uh, the Labour Party over in the UK, which was um, people trying to say, ah, but the Labour Party can't exclude this or the other person because of these laws. It's like, well, yeah, but the Labour Party is actually a private club, technically, so they can yeah. pretty much do whatever they like. So that, um, <laughs> for what for what little logic there is in these systems, that at least seems to have carried over somehow. 
Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, there's very little oversight with regard to primaries in terms of how it's run internally. I mean, the election part is typically run by the state's board of elections because there will be a primary election or a caucus, both for the Democrats and the Republicans the same day. So it's being run by those states' boards of elections. But that, in terms of like how it's managed and so forth, uh, within the party and also for ballot access for candidates in terms of being able to be on the ballot in the first place. It's pretty much a closed shop and it's it's very undemocratic. And then uh, if you want, I can go into a little more detail too. There's also a bunch of systems in place to make primaries as difficult to vote in as possible. This is particularly common in like machine politics, blue states. I used to live in New York state and it's very, very restrictive there. Uh, but it's similar in states like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois. There have been some reforms, and post some reforms in New York State, it's gotten a little better. They at least have early voting now, for example. But it doesn't escape notice, you know, the irony that um, I lived in North Carolina in 2012. I, I voted in the 2012 presidential election. And I lived in Alaska in 2008, and I voted in the presidential election then too. And both times I was able to vote early in those states. Uh, in Alaska, in the midterms in 2010, I was able to vote absentee by by mail, by post. Um, in New York State, however, I was not able to do early voting uh, until 2019. Believe it or not, I was <laughs> back was back home uh, visiting Amazing. family, and I I was uh, they they had just passed it. And the reason for that, to give you a quick little vignette as to why New York politics and Democratic machine politics is so fucked up, uh, you may have become familiar with a governor named Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York State. <laughs> so Andrew Cuomo yeah. is is like just a, a massive corrupt piece of shit. Uh, I don't think it's liable for me to say that there are there's famously there are three clutch members of the New York New York state politics. They are the governor, the speaker of the assembly, and the Senate majority leader. And I want to say 2015, 2016, both the speaker of the assembly and the Senate majority leader went to prison for corruption. But somehow <laughs> Andrew Cuomo didn't know anything about it. Uh, of course, there was at one point an inquiry into corruption in New York state. Uh, convened by the governor. And then when it got too close to him, he just shut it all down and sealed it. And when pressed on this, his response was, well, it's my inquiry. I opened it. I can close it whenever I want. <laughs> so I could Andrew turn this goddamn car around. Exactly. So, so Andrew Cuomo, the reason why, for example, we didn't have uh, early voting for so long, and there's so many other things where legitimately red states had, had, had gotten ahead of us in terms of voting access. Uh, was because Andrew Cuomo has his eyes set on the national stage, and he knows that given the left leftish center leftish slant of New York State politics, chances are very good that if he runs for national office, but he's had to sign bills that were popular and passed in New York, like legalizing cannabis or early voting, or you know trying to establish something similar to what Oregon has with like an expanded Medicaid to the point where there aren't very very few uninsured people in the state. He knows that if he signs those. He will then, those will be liabilities for him on the national stage. So what Cuomo did was he negotiated a sweetheart deal with, I believe it was 12 members of the state Senate and Assembly in the safest Democratic districts 
to basically form their own caucus that wouldn't caucus with the Democrats, but would rather caucus. They call themselves the Independent Democratic Caucus, and they oh, would that's, only yeah, 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 yeah. I remember. And that, they would that. caucus. They would caucus with the Republicans to prevent legislation advancing that Andrew Cuomo didn't want to sign because it was too left. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These were oh. people who were like on the Democratic ballot and presented to like the average non-obsessed voter, like we are, as Democrats. But they just, in in essence, they were just Republicans. Yes, 100%. And that was all his doing. Americans have reached like this next level of uh, rat fuckery where in the UK and the Labour Party, it's all behind closed doors. It's uh, no one knows about it until years after the fact. The fucking American Democrats just just do it out in the open. Like, cool. Very good. <laughs> I mean, I'll point something out to you. You know, I remember when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won uh, her primary against Joe Crawley. Um, you know, she won by, I want to say, three or four thousand votes because this is, you know, a primary election for a safe Democratic seat in, you know, a very, very densely populated part of the country. Uh, and because of the way the system is run, how how convoluted it is to register as a Democrat, uh, how often they try to stagger primary vote days, literally not just staggered between different races, but staggered between neighborhoods where like one ward will have its election on a different day. They go out of their way to make it as complicated and as confusing as possible to vote because they want to keep turnout as low as possible to protect incumbents. So I remember uh, Ocasio-Cortez won, I believe her, uh, the turnout in her district was something like between 15 and 20%. I don't know the exact number, but I do know that in my congressional district, there wasn't also a primary challenger who was, while not as as, as notionally left as Ocasio-Cortez, certainly to the left of Yvette Clark, who is like the machine Democrat who's been, you know, she inherited the seat from her mom. She's been in the seat forever. Um, the seat a, it came, it, she, go ahead, was sorry. This a, was this, no, no, no. I was thinking of Julia Salazar, but she was running for DA, I think. She, no, no. Salazar was running. Uh, she is a state senator. Um, okay. the, the the DA you're thinking of uh, is Tiffany Caban, who, yes. who lost, but similar level of rat fuckery. And she's in Queens. So I lived in Crown Heights in central Brooklyn. And that the, the, the primary I'm describing to you, uh, the incumbent did win. She only won by about 2,000 votes, but the turnout was 9%. <laughs> And that's pretty typical for primaries in New York State. They, because yeah. I'll give you an example. They, uh, in New York State, and this is similar in, in states in the Northeast, uh, you, not only you have to be registered as a Democrat, you have to, when you register to vote, you have to elect to register as a member of the party. But particularly in New York State, you can't vote in primaries until you've been a registered member of the Democratic Party for at least six months. And one of the ways they try to fuck people on this is that if you've changed addresses and re-registered, uh, they, it's not, I don't think it's legal for them to say you can't, you know, you, you weren't, haven't been a Democrat long enough, but what they'll typically do is just fudge the regi the registration and basically be like, oh, well, uh, the system says that you, you know, you haven't been registered long enough or so on and so forth. So <laughs> invariably people show up to vote and they get told that they're, they, they have to vote with a provisional ballot because it doesn't count. Can I ask you something about this? Cause this is something that that's been breaking my head for a while now. And I've never, I mean, to be fair, like I've never spent half an hour at Google cause I'm lazy. I'm just going to ask you instead. Uh, it's like, how, how are you a member of the democratic party? Cause I at least in, in with labor, you know, like you, you send money, you get, you know, a, a card that says, hi, I'm a member. They point you to your local ward. Your MP is a person that, you know, how are you, how is anybody like, can I be, I mean, not me, but like, can you be a dues paying member of the Democratic Party of the United States? No, not in the way <laughs> that we have in the UK. It's completely different. And that's something that surprised me about it here. Uh, you have to be a registered Democrat to vote in primaries. You don't have to pay for it. Uh, but 
in order to be involved with democratic politics, like at the, like at your, you know, the, 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 the lowest level possible at the, the most local level possible, you really have to go out of your way to find it. And they don't really do much outreach to try to bring people in. Um, and obviously there's a disconnect between, you know, you have your MP, your MP isn't not, isn't necessarily like the president of the council, but they're, they they have a, a senior role in the council. So you go to your CLP meeting, you know, and you've got, assuming you live in a CLP where the MP, you know, like the MP who represents you is from that party and they play a role in the CLP plays a role, you know, the council plays a role, et cetera. Uh, but in New York, for example, or in other places in America, obviously you have your congressional representative, your Ocasio-Cortez, but then also you have your city council representative who, you know, and, and your whatever your representative for like that ward or that neighborhood association is like not like homeowners association, but literally like they have these like city block or like small neighborhood councils as well. So in a way, like, there's so many layers between you and the person who represents you in national politics. But there absolutely is not a comparable system to here where most people are just sort of free-floating voters uh, and the only people who can vote in, you know, party elections are dues-paying members. That doesn't exist. So weird. It's more representative and less membership-based, which I, I guess serves part of the purpose in turning down... Uh, sorry, in... in in reducing turnout and yeah, reaching sure. a level of separation between the, the electorate, the voter base and the actual people in power. So yeah, that Andrew Cuomo guy sounds like a brilliant candidate for the democratic nominee. If anything <laughs> health wise could to... possibly happen to <laughs> Joe, Biden, <laughs> Joe Biden, Joe Biden, the guy who's sundowning, but okay. So that's, so we have the baseline. American politics is pretty fucked in terms of, democratic values um what i was sort of alluding to with the dnc being being a closed organization that can run itself any way it wants to during the campaign we saw a lot of um uh people pointing out the fact that the exit polling from a lot of primary states was massively different to what the um actual results ended up being and people were comparing it with like the UN guide on how to detect <laughs> voter fraud and stuff. And, you know, like something like if the if the divergence between the exit poll and the result is more than like 4%, then you have a suspected case of vote tampering. And in the in the Democratic primary, in, in a lot of cases, it, it was things like 15%. Oh, God, yeah. I think we can all agree that the United States is a failed state. <laughs> I mean, it could have. I mean, <laughs> if the. So, I mean, there would have been a legitimate case for like the um, the OAS to sort of like invade America and say, "I'm sorry, we don't <laughs> think this is an open and fair election." That would have been hilarious. But yeah, I mean, something that <laughs> something that kept getting brought up is that just a few months ago, Eva Morales of Bolivia mm, was okay. subjected to an international coup because of much much um, milder problems in exit poll discrepancy or in. Yeah, in, in, in Bolivia's case, the vote the yeah. vote tally website was down for a while, and there was mm -hmm. the possibility that people had had accessed it to to change numbers, but that wasn't proven. That was just an allegation. Uh, later on, people, some I believe researchers examined it and said that there was no case to call it invalid. But by comparison, um, I'm from Indiana originally, and the neighboring state to our east is Ohio, which is, of course, a big swing state in presidential elections. And it's a very, very populous state. So, you know, I think it has something like 26 electoral votes or something along those lines. So it, it can make a difference. In Ohio, it was just long been run by Republicans. 
famously the Republican Speaker of the House, John Boehner, is from there. Oh, um, in 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 Ohio, there is no paper ballot; it's all done on machines. So oh, if you have God. a recount, if you have a recount, you have no real access to a paper recount. It's whatever the machines want to tell you. Uh, which, the, and some of the some of the problems that people have like filmed and taken pictures of just online, just like on fucking Twitter, where you try and tap your candidate, and it like, oh, did you want to select the, the Republican, and you're just emphatically hitting the Democrat yeah. Democrat candidate over and over again, and it's still coming up with Republican. Yeah, this I, mean, is the, I first yeah, this is the uh, the Diebold. Uh, Machines, I believe that I, that I first heard about back during the Bush and Gore election issue, which is sort of when I first became aware of. Yeah, of and I, and I think I think I think it should we should make a quick mention of that just in terms because I mean I recognize that maybe this is old hat to all of us, but for a lot of your listeners who may not follow U.S. politics mm-hmm. or may not you know know the U.S. political system yeah, as well, no, there are, there are, I, I hope some of our listeners are healthy people who are not as obsessed as we are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I doubt it, we but should, you know. We should address the fact that in 2000, uh, there was obviously a, a tie in electoral votes and it came down to Florida. And there were a number of ballots that it was the intention was obvious to mark for the Democrat. But they, the, in those days, the voting machines, you literally pulled a lever and it punched the uh, you know, holes in the paper ballot. And the, the Florida Board of Elections and the governor, who were all Republicans, basically decided to throw out a bunch of ballots that would have tipped it to, to Gore. They, the Democrats challenged this. It went to the Supreme Court. And of course, the Supreme Court being at that point, uh, 5-4 Republican or conservative to to liberal, uh, voted to uphold the decision to throw out those ballots. So when people say it was a stolen election in 2000, like that's not hyperbole. Like more people it, oh, voted yeah. for Gore in Florida than for Bush. They found some legal chicanery to, to fuck everyone out of it. And thus Bush became president. And you know the the rest the, basically the the die was cast for the rest of the fucking century apparently but like that that's not hyperbole to say that they it was legal because of the way the legal system in america yeah, works yeah. but it was it that 100 it was letter of the law not the spirit when you think about what happened yeah i, I was so, I, uh, I just going back to the florida uh tiebreaker the fact that um, I, well, I, I quite enjoy the film Vice. I thought it was quite a good movie. Um, the part, the part where um, Dick Cheney basically says, uh, gets told that it's a tie, and he's like, "Well, we act like we won." Like they start just allocating jobs to people, telling people to start doing it, doing things as if they'd won, and it's like that is not surprising in the slightest. <laughs> so no, no, no. I mean, right. and, and that's and when you think about that, I mean, the the logical continuation of this is that in 2000 in 2000 gore was the popular vote winner but he lost electoral votes because of that legal fuckery that happened in 2004 bush won the popular vote and uh and then obama won in 2008 with a massive increase in turnout um he won my home state which uh hasn't voted for a republican or a correction hasn't voted for a democrat since the civil rights act for that exact reason uh and basically there was a huge surge of early voting and voter organization that was getting people who would normally not vote to the polls. Republicans saw this and said, we need to make this illegal. Now, I bring this forward to then 2020, uh, looking at things, for example, like the allocation of voting or polling sites 
in the state of California, particularly in Southern California, in Orange County, very conservative suburbs of Los Angeles to the um, southeast of, La of Los Angeles County. Uh, there are people that I know that live there had no problem. They were in and out in five, 10 minutes. It was like voting in the UK, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, students at UCLA, by comparison, the lines were like five, six, seven hours long because half the machines were broken and they had closed a bunch of the sites that would normally be open. Now, here's the thing. That is the, probably the most democratic state in America, run with it by a, a democratic governor uh, in Los Angeles fucking county, one of the most I mean, it's machine Democrats shit. It's not, there is no leftist government in America. The closest thing to a leftist anywhere in terms of having actual power in America is a Philly DA, Larry Krasner. And if you want to dig into that story, like the state of, the state of Pennsylvania is trying to legally <laughs> divest him of any power because they're mad that like, that like ending cash bail and reduction in sentences is working because they have way too many donors in, and I'm not joking, the private prison industry. Uh, yeah. So, course. Voter suppression, basically, starting really starting under the Republicans. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, the Roberts Court basically struck down a key provision of the uh, Voter Rights Act in 2015. This was an act passed during the Civil Rights Movement to basically create a sort of system of what you might describe as almost international monitors, but you know, at the federal level for the states. That's been done away with, and so of course, voter suppression has continued to pace. I think that this primary, what's really shocking to me, is the extent to which it's very clear that the Democratic Party, in order to shut out people who would other who would probably vote for Bernie Sanders, uh, the Democratic Party has embraced it. They're fine with it. And then come fucking November, they're going to be crying crocodile tears about you know, ooh, how could we have known that this shit yeah. was going to bite us? Absolutely. So, so that sets the scene very well. This is the environment in which the, the Bernie Sanders campaign emerges and it finds itself with a surprise kind of um, success in 2016. I don't think anyone really expected it to be as, um, as successful as it was. Even Bernie, even Bernie didn't yeah, expect yeah. it. And, that, and, and that's then, really, none of yeah. them thought it was going to do as well as it did. Yeah. So in the face of the entire inertia of structural disenfranchisement of anti-democratic mechanisms put in place deliberately purposefully by the democratic party we still managed to win the first three states of the democratic primary which had i don't think that's ever happened before in history so uh, uh, maybe it, i don't know maybe maybe in history somewhere that's always a difficult thing to say but not they're, they're, in, in, they're, they're basically i think that i'm not 100 percent sure but i think the point to make there is that there has never been a case where uh, a candidate who won the first three states hasn't gone on to be there. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, is it? Okay. I got it wrong. Whatever. It's still massive, right? And yeah. why does this happen? So, so why why is this campaign able to overcome such a big institutional deficit and have these victories, have these wins? So that there's a couple of conditions that at the beginning of the campaign, we've got um, multiple candidates still in the race. We have a sort of revamped brokering rule system at the convention, which I think a lot of the uh, sort of lesser name candidates were hoping to take advantage of. So they were the original plan, I think, for people like Buttigieg and Klobuchar was to just stay in as long as possible because they were, were going to have a better opportunity at the convention. Um, which is basically predicated on the idea that they didn't think that Bernie Sanders was going to be able to have enough uh, delegates to have an outright, outright plurality. Which is a fair bet, yeah. all things considered, given that the margins that Bernie was looking to be winning by were not massive. In Nevada, they were, but they weren't in Iowa or New Hampshire. 
And as a result, it was it was it would have been a safe bet to say that although Bernie would probably be the delegate leader, you know, you could you could bet, you know, 50 yeah. 50. I, I, he might I don't go into the convention Bernie without ever cracked more like nationally speaking. I don't think he ever cracked 30 more than 30 percent, I think. If that. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure. In a race, ahead, that sorry. sounds possibly right. It doesn't really matter what the number is. If you're in a race with multiple other candidates, then you have a much better chance of your not huge coalition. Like it's not the, you know, like everyone's voting for you. You can get yourself ahead in a very strong position. But I'm more interested in the actual campaign itself. We So this is the first time where um, I think since Obama, where there's been a real movement of belief. Now, we all know this. We've seen this happen. People really believe. And from a tactical campaigning point of view i think it's important to remember that you can make uh, headway in a, an electoral system off the power of having campaigners who are committed and who do believe in it uh, and who care very passionately ab about the candidate and i we see the success of this in the fact that the satellite caucuses that were set up for marginalized and formerly disenfranchised voters went overwhelmingly for sanders uh, that the efforts of the campaigners on the Vegas Strip with workers from the Culinary Union um, were so successful that when the union itself, I think it was the Culinary Union, right? When the union itself it was, endorsed yes. Warren uh, or someone else, the membership overwhelmingly voted for Bernie anyway. Yeah, so, that was. Uh, I think that was the same union that was. Uh, or uh, there were. I know there were ads being run saying that uh, Medicare for All will mean that your union will uh be have to negotiate for healthcare yeah. again and it's like well <laughs> that's not yeah. that's not how that works it's, uh you are freeing up the uh political capital for the union to negotiate for something else if they Absolutely. don't have to negotiate for fucking healthcare for everyone Absolutely and it's not a difficult point to get because when the campaigners went and talked to the union members people got it and they were able to put their point across and win votes for Bernie Sanders and then we get to Super Tuesday and it all goes to shit so what happened what happens before Super Tuesday? What's the so I want to ask first what's the obvious thing that you think of or it, when you look back to what was happening what was the obvious thing that you noticed that your instinctive sort of gut was taking in as the reason as the big event? Well, well I mean what's the I, obvious do, thing. Do you, do you want do you want everyone to go around and guess or do you want me to to, to go off? I mean I I I have an idea but <laughs> Well you you go you go off and then we'll just explode after you. It's fine. Let's go. <laughs> Please Nate, take it. What's the bit what what hit you in the gut? All of the candidates that were drawing votes from one another but not from Bernie or not primarily from Bernie, which would be Klobuchar, Buttigieg, um and uh Warren. there were a couple of well here I'll get to Warren in a second. Um mm -hmm. And some of the smaller ones too, uh, who literally has been, it's only been two months, but I've completely forgotten their names. Oh, but, Bloomberg. Um, right. Okay. Well, Blue, Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> and then um, there were a few others uh, like. But he's the smallest of the Yeah, yeah he is. He's mini Mike, right? Um, they they dropped out and endorsed Biden prior to Super Tuesday. Warren did not drop out. And Warren didn't didn't even, I think she placed third in Massachusetts, her home state, but she didn't yeah, win any race. She wasn't close to winning. Although, I, I mean. If you looked at polling Warren voters, there was a significant chunk of them who were going to go to Bernie, but there also was a significant chunk of them who were going to go to to Biden or to other candidates. I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a lot of Warren voters' second candidate was Bernie. A lot, another significant mm -hmm. candidate for them was Buttigieg. So, 
you when you talk about those small margins that Bernie was winning by, you've then not only handed um, you know all of those numbers primarily most of them. I can't imagine there's a ton of of Klobuchar voters who are like fucking. Well, if it can't be Amy, then it's got to be Bernie. Uh, but <laughs> what this basically creates is a situation in which uh, Sanders is relying on his voter base. And he's not really getting a lot of runoff or second preference votes from people who would have voted for the more, you know, center right, moderate candidates, whatever you want to fucking call them. Uh, Warren didn't drop out. And so I think Mm -hmm. Bernie's best chance probably would have been if Warren had dropped out, he probably would have squeaked by and won in a bunch of more states and he would have still had momentum. I think South Carolina, uh, if you know anything about South Carolina and the Democratic Party there, it wasn't really going to be likely that Bernie was going to win, although there have been some discussions about a lack of outreach to black voters, which I'm going to be honest with you, elderly black voters, particularly elderly black female voters, are the core constituency of the Democratic Party in South Carolina. South Carolina is an extremely red state. So why they didn't do that outreach? We're going to talk about that a little bit later on when we get to the campaign issues. Yeah. Um, So, But but basically, long story short here is that... you the the calculus worked so long as you had those margins in which there were more voters for Bernie mm-hmm. than there were people who could side on which centrist fucking candidate they wanted to support. When all those centrists dropped out, Warren didn't drop out, you suddenly had a consolidation of those votes. It was always gonna be tough in places like South yeah. Carolina. Um, but I don't think that you needed to have it, it be as bad as it was in, for example, in uh in places like Massachusetts and to some extent California, because we were hoping in California that Sanders was going to completely run up the score to the point where he would he would bring in so many delegates and that that competition for moderate votes would have locked out any of those candidates for any delegates at all, because there's a threshold at which you have to reach before you can get any delegates allotted. Uh, yeah. That didn't happen. And so yeah. what wound up happening was uh he wasn't able to run up the score in california as much as he thought he didn't win very many other races and south carolina was an absolute like fucking blowout for joe biden and from there you know it's like it, basically the media had their momentum at that they had their 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 narrative at yeah that they point. finally had the they f- could finally come out because at first i genuinely remember because at first um after Iowa, it was uh, um, Mayor Pete, right? You know, it was all Mayor Pete all the time, and he's got the momentum because he was really close. And then, obviously, that turned out to be a complete dud because Mayor Pete is just like some sort of lab-grown experiment that in 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 human lab rat hybrids that sort of escaped the lab and put on a tie. He's a spook. He's I yeah. I'm 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 fully blackpilled on the fact that Mayor (laughs) Pete is a CIA spook. That's yeah yeah yeah. No, uh, I'll 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 join you there. Um, but I think there was a yeah so you could see this 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 desire on part of the media to to have any anybody but bernie like any you know half breathing body will will do and then they tried it i think oh, with I mean, everybody you know it, it, you remember before iowa there was the you know we were also all of a sudden if you remember for a few weeks we were supposed to believe that there was such a thing as clobmentum <laughs> <laughs> no 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 like, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it bears mentioned that Amy Klobuchar came forward and said that, you know, free college and uh, Medicare for all were pipe dreams and they'll never happen in America. So people were trying to point to her and say, oh, look, here's the moderate candidate who basically says better things aren't possible. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, you have Pete Buttigieg who, who basically, I mean, 
I, I, I'm not trying to be cloy here. I'm, I'm legitimately, uh, or correction, I'm not trying to be cloying here. I'm legitimately, you know, saying this. He was running on the idea that people would be so hyped up to vote for gay Obama that they wouldn't, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they wouldn't ever look at his policies, which just were basically nothing. He, he, he also, I, in a way, I mean, his candidacy was doomed from the start because he pulled so poorly with black voters and with Hispanic voters that he was never going to come close in places like South Carolina or, uh, or Nevada. Um, now, I mean, in 2016, famously Sanders said he wasn't really that worried about losing states in the South because those aren't states the Democrats are going to win in the presidential uh, election anyway. I was going like, to bring that up. What is so important about South Carolina? Like it's ever going to go blue in a GE. It, it, I mean, usually it's, it isn't. I mean, I, I can't really remember any U.S. elections. Maybe Nate, you do, but like I can't remember anyone's. You know, where South Carolina, apart from this one with with Biden, where where it was, you know, a, a real tipping point and presented as such. Well, you're looking at a media that is looking for literally any yeah, yeah, yeah. impetus I, to take I, I, a narrative I'm... out of uh, Bernie's hands. I'm pretty sure that Bill Clinton in 1992 polled so low in Iowa that he didn't, he was like literally behind the undecided vote. Like literally you can vote for no preference in Iowa. He got less yeah. than no preference. He then won South Carolina and he went on to win the nomination. Obviously he was very popular in the South. I think the thing so for it's me- it's historical kind of- yeah, it's it's it, but the thing about yeah. it is, is that yeah, okay, North Carolina is is a swing state to some extent. It's been it's been gerrymandered to fuck, and the Republicans basically are like they're like f five years ahead of Putin in set in terms of their anti democratic <laughs> impulses. So North Carolina is a very difficult state for the Democrats to win in the in the the prime or the the general, but in the primary, um, but like it's still a correction. It's still a state that you know is in flux, where South Carolina is is absolutely not. Uh, South Carolina is Republican mm -hmm. through and through. The, the problem with South Carolina is that it's it's a it's a relatively rural state. It's very poor. It's, it's not very populated, and it's got a huge contingent of like nightmare boomer retirees in places like Myrtle Beach. Uh, yeah. So effectively, mm -hmm. it's imagine imagine Florida with worse wealth inequality, and you've got South Carolina. And so it's Jesus. never going to vote. It, it, it's it's never going to go no. uh, Democrat. But obviously, like it's a state. It's one of the bigger states on Super Tuesday. I or in the, traditionally before California was a Super Tuesday state, it was one of the bigger ones. So I mean, it's a big question of momentum. I really think that in the case of uh, of Biden, um, I just think that everyone knew that Biden was going to do well there, and yeah. the decision got made that basically Biden, because he was going to beat, he was going to be the first candidate to beat Bernie at something, that he was just <laughs> going to be the one, and. We've seen yeah, how so it's all rolled down. That's an interesting question. Why Biden? Because it's it's very because obvious the, to the, everyone. All the others just flopped too bad. Well, I mean, yeah, but 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 when this all happened, Biden was like coming in fourth, and Buttigieg was coming in second. Klobuchar came in third somewhere, and then these people who were doing objectively better than Biden all drop out and endorse him. That just looks really obvious to everyone. So that's like the big kind of you know. Um, middle finger directed at the electorate and i think we now know maybe not like a hundred percent but there's been a couple of articles about obama's kind of backroom uh deals and maneuvering all very praising this this fantastic statesman who is uh you know well versed in the art of the politics deal um so i think we kind of know that we have a legacy 
Democratic leadership figure who decided to pull some strings and anoint Biden as the candidate. Because I'm not going to lie, guys, I don't think the uh, the the old guy who's more senile than Trump was the good choice to beat Trump. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I think it's pretty. I feel like it's fairly clear that the DNC is not necessarily interested in winning the presidency. They're interested solely and like monomaniacally with maintaining their stranglehold over the Democratic yeah. Party as a whole. I mean, I'll, I'll, you, I'll throw you something out there. I mean, Democratic donors are to the right of the Democratic Party leadership, and uh, DNC oh, donors, big donors, are running primary challengers against. Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, against Rashida Tlaib, against basically all of the squad. Uh, their one against Ilhan Omar is a joke. She's not going to win. But uh, the one against Tlaib might win. She was a former congressman from that district. Uh, so effectively, I, I think the big thing with Biden is that Biden represents a very powerful boomer impulse to go back to normal. Yeah, because of his affiliation I, yeah. with Obama. He was Obama's That's vice famous, president. Yeah. He also was, he was a very right... He, I mean, remember... The thing that I think is there is that they're not considering is that people think Obama and they think, oh, you know, liberal progress, you know, things are going to get better 1% per year. Everything's going to be amazing. Uh, but what they forget is that Biden, Obama wasn't supposed to win 08. And the Democrats fucking hated him for winning 08 until he won the presidency. Uh, this, Hil- is the, um, the, this is where the Pumas come into play. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hillary was supposed to win. It was her turn. Obama skipped her, skipped his turn or, skipped, you know, he leapfrogged Hillary. There was the party unity, my ass people who said they'd vote McCain over Obama because how dare he take which Hillary's they did. spot. Which, that was, which the, they did, that yeah. was the Hillary is 44 website for the real sort of real heads among us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 100% real. I mean, that, that, that was a thing that existed. Um, but the thing that, that the, the thing that I would point out is that um, Biden was brought in as the candidate or as the vice presidential nominee uh, in 2008 to assuage the right of the Democratic Party because they thought Obama was too left wing. So there's the whole part of like, hey, you know, Biden represents this beautiful past, like, you know, delusions of fucking golden age grandeur, like basically the DNC equivalent of ISIS trying to build the caliphate. (laughs) But what they don't realize is that if you know anything about Joe Biden's politics, he's always been a conservative Democrat. He's always been to the right of the party. And so this is he's best friends with like Strom Thurmond and that completely creepy, you know, vampire segregationists part of like sort of dixiecrat yeah that mean but yeah. no, so thurman just, thurman was a republican i don't know if thurman was a democrat and then switched parties but uh he may have because that was a big thing but yeah no, i mean no, basically biden is like a dixiecrat yeah biden biden figure, absolutely yeah, but, is he, i mean he's yeah. from delaware which you could say is sort of marginal it's like in this liminal area between the north and the south i think some people from delaware might take offense at that and say it is a southern state but <laughs> the the thing about it is is that uh biden represents a tradition of basically trying to reassure racist voters who were sort of you know by family tradition and such occupational tradition affiliated with the democratic party but then started to drift towards the republicans after the civil rights movement and so biden spent a significant chunk of his career basically defending segregation opposing busing he's always been a huge piece of shit and uh, bringing him up as this nostalgic object basically is expecting that everyone in America is going to have, you know, the memory of a goldfish. And anyone who doesn't knows that 
he he is in a way i mean i fucking hate the guy but in a way them just jumping and installing andrew cuomo would represent less of a rightward shift than biden (laughs) given his politics amazing yeah uh it's interesting that uh trying to go back to the golden age of the Obama years and then you consider what Obama's legacy was with, uh, you know, drone strikes and, you know, actually starting the whole separating uh, families at the border thing. Like, extremely horrendous right-wing bloodthirsty acts, like political acts, that should be opposed by any uh, anyone who has any sort of sense of empathy. And yet, no, uh, Biden's good, actually, because he is exactly representative of that era. Great. But I think Thank you very much. I, I do think it, you know, it, it's a different episode, but I do think it also played a role with, with Corbyn. Um, is I, I think that genuinely, I, I think a couple of things. I think first, I think we are, you know, of the left, which puts us in a small minority anyway, but we are also very media literate and like i think most of us will sort of be on twitter or read newspapers or you know have some kind of interaction with with news at a fairly advanced level um for like an hour or two or 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 more a day or if you're bored like me at work maybe more um then then and i think most people don't absorb news in the way that that like we do and i think a lot of people and maybe nate i'm wrong and then you should tell me but I think a lot of people, but also here in the UK with with Corbyn, they they wanted two things. They wanted things to go back to normal, and like for for a lot of people, for especially like a middle class white voter in somewhere in the fucking suburbs who does want to vote demo, who votes or wants to vote Democrat, Sanders is not is not normal. Sanders also has explicitly said, like Corbyn did. If you elect me, it will not be a normal government. We're going to make big structural changes that impact you. And I think a lot of people, especially now post-Trump or or in the UK, when it comes to you know this sort of gigantic amount of Brexit fatigue, just like I just you know I, I want things to go back to normal. I want to be able to stop paying attention to shit because I don't want to. And what I really remember is um, it was a terrible slogan. It was from another thing. It was right after uh, Trump was elected. You had all these marches in Washington of, of various groups, and one of them I really remember. It had a sign um, that said, "I'm skipping brunch for this." Now, obviously, it's oh, a yeah. ghastly sign, but it to me it says a lot. To me, it says, "I just want to be at brunch, and I want Obama." You know, most people again don't come into contact with the immigration system. He's made me feel good, and that's all I want to do. I, mean, I love being I love being a liberal and uh, doing what fascists love to do and harken back to an idyllic age that never existed. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, there's a reason why they made that meme about, you know, the headline says, you know, socialism, KKK, racism, Black Lives Matter. I just want to grill for God's sake. Like, that's a person. That's a <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an American voter. Person. Yeah. Um, that's, but, yeah. But, 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 I, but I guess something that I'd point out here is that I do think there's been an increase in turnout across the board. I think that that's been measured and that I know a lot of people who've worked in canvassing stuff or have been involved uh, in various states, you know, in the D.C. uh, Beltway area, in North Carolina, uh, in California even. And they've said that a lot of the suburban voters are voting for the Democrats. And so, I mean, you may see like a sort of an actual swing of suburban Democrats, suburban voters voting Democrat. But I think that I do think that that 
while that might be enough to get Biden over the line, that's not going to be enough, A, to provide the kind of impetus to change the things that need to be changed, or B, to stave off the absolute fucking frothing at the mouth meltdown that's going to happen, um, you know, the minute that he gets elected. And, you know, this, like, the, the every year it sort of, like, gets recursively worse and more insane kind of right-wing uh, astroturf shit. That's only going to get worse. And I, I think the big thing is, is that if you look at Obama's legacy, you know, a lot of liberals are very content to say, well, we're on the right side of history, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but the, damn the, Republicans, yeah. the damn, damn Republicans wouldn't let us do anything, yeah. so we just couldn't do it, but damn it, we wanted to, and that's supposed to be enough, and it's like... Oh, it's that, well, it's that um, and, and they wanna, and they green wing mindset, that sort of uh, West wing mind poisoning, is that Democrats, and especially this sort of middle-class suburb voter... They do think that there's a real value in coming together and meeting in the middle on policy. They all think that that's the real grown-up thing to do, you know. Was that, I mean, that was part of uh, allegedly Klobuchar's appeal that she was the one yeah. that was saying, "No, you can't have, you can't have anything. Fuck you." It's like, oh wow, yes, I, I respect you for um, treading on my balls like that. Please keep doing so, it. <laughs> throwing staplers, please. I mean, there's a reason why she, as a candidate, attracted the most support from the adult diaper baby fetish vor community. All right, like they saw a mutual affinity there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did. So, yeah. if anybody is going to beat me, it has to be Amy. Oh, uh, I'd love to fin dom the working class. <laughs> oh, Jesus! Oh my God! <laughs> right. Okay. So, <laughs> do you want to move past that? Yes, please. Um, <laughs> So the Biden strategy seems to be appealed to the never Trumper Republican people in the suburbs, right? The the moderate right wingers who think that he's just too much of a cheat. Oh, he's just too orange. He's just too uncouth, and he's rude on Twitter. So we can vote for for Biden. Well, and I, think, I don't. I think those. People, I don't know if that's going to work. I think those I, people. I don't know. I don't know. It, might. it depends on how you split it up. But I do think a lot of those people have in general become more uneasy with the modern republican party which you know which it has it's completely a trumpified party if you look yeah you, but so uh, yeah see, but rob it's like it's like independence they they all vote fucking straight ticket r they 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 never do anything else right if you meet an american who says i'm an independent yeah yeah he's, he's no, almost I mean, certainly insane, but a Republican voter or like a libertarian, you know, just votes R. I, I don't know. All the never Trumpers are going to fall in line and vote R probably because mm. that's what they do. It's just, that's, that's my guess. That's my instinct. I might be wrong. I might be off, but that would be my sort of take on things. Well, I I'd, so I made this point uh, when I was talking about the uh, labor leaks and basically, so the labor party is now elected Keir Starmer as leader and, Essentially, what that move represents is a move away from the working class to the Guardian reading liberal or Guardian uh, columnist, I should say, rather, which is uh, a massive disparity in terms of just as an electorate. Like, there are more fucking working class people than there are people who write columns in the Guardian, if you can believe that for a moment. Uh, and attempt, and so in the US, you've now got the sort of uh, sort of orthogonal to that, which is giving up on the actual moderate democratic voter in order for this non-existent uh, Republican, a moderate Republican, which of which there are probably as many of them as there are uh, colonists in the fucking Guardian. Because like you say, Elijah, if there is such a person, they're probably still just going to fucking vote Republican anyway. 
What do you reckon, Nate? I don't... I mean, I, I guess the thing for me is more like this. Look, there's, you know, we talked about this in the UK general election that you, you should go into it with the, the thought that, that the Tories have a baked in support of something between 40 and 45% of the country. Like 40 to 45% of the people in this country who are going to vote are cunts and they're going to vote for the Tories. And you cannot hope that, you know, a freak fucking snowstorm causes them to crash their cars in the home counties and stops them from voting. They're going to vote. They're probably going to vote by, by post and they're, they're going to vote Tory. And I think you have a similar situation with voters in the United States that the Republicans, although they they love suppressing the vote, they make it very easy to vote if you live in Republican districts. And they're very they're they're, they're quite uh, precise in their targeting in that regard. Uh, and, you know, the math doesn't look great. I mean, I would like to hope that you would be able to do better than Clinton did. And remember, Clinton was historically unpopular. Biden oh, yeah. is more popular than Clinton. Uh, one of the reasons why Sanders did so well in 2016, I think, was because he was the anti-Hillary candidate in the sense that he was on the ballot, he was left of Clinton, and he wasn't affiliated with the Democratic Party and all of the shit that people, you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, hate about mm -hmm. the Clintons. I mean, don't get me wrong. Was Clinton subject to a bunch of smears? Yes, she absolutely was. Oh, yeah. Was she also, did she have terrible political instincts and some of like the worst fucking like skeletons in the closet? Absolutely, yes. She had a ton of baggage. She also was unfairly treated. Biden will be treated poorly by the American media. Don't get me wrong. There will be a lot of rat mm -hmm. fucking. There will be a lot of terrible, dumb shit that comes out. I think that Trump is already making hay with the videos of him being creepy and like sniffing little girl's hair and stuff. So that's gonna that's gonna happen. Yeah. But I think the thing about the thing about it is, with regard to the the kind of independent question, there are a lot of people out there that that swing back and forth because to them, I mean, basically, I don't really know where they get their information from, but it's probably you know shitty TV ads some of the debate, some stuff in the newspaper, and then just like a general vibe. Like, you know, they, they <laughs> yeah. just say who they vibe with better. I mean, famously, you may remember this in 2002 or 2004, it might've been, but it could have been 2000. I can't remember. One of like the, the selling points of George Bush was that, oh, he's the kind of guy that you just want to like sit down and have a beer with. Yeah, have a beer and with. Like, all right, and, hold on. Yeah. First of all, he's sober. He's, he's yeah. a recovered alcoholic <laughs> for a reason. And secondly, like, He's for, he's a fucking Yale grad from Connecticut. He's just faking an accent. Like what? Yeah. He's he's literally the same person as John Kerry in terms of like pompous blue bloodedness. You just have fallen for a fucking propaganda campaign. And so I don't know how that's going to play out with with Joe Biden. I just I'm concerned that there will be enough dirt thrown at him to depress the people that he needs to turn out. And I also think that like much like we've gotten some rumblings of this with Starmer in the UK, when the absolute worst people in the party are back in power, that basically means all of Clinton land is back in power. And they mm -hmm. have this magical ability to put up policy proposals that alienate everyone that just yeah. like are exactly what no one wants. And it's so incredible. It's really a skill that I don't know how, what, kind of uh frankensteinian experiment you need to have done on you in order to just do the thing that no one wants you to do mm -hmm. so we need to move on a little bit because that's we've just talked about what was done to the campaign right the the rat fucking the coalescing behind biden as a candidate the dnc machinations to just really um take away any kind of momentum and winning ability the, the sanders campaign had and put everything behind uh the guy with the brain melting out of his ears um, but I want to talk a little bit about what the campaign did to itself. 
Um, so I'm going to put links to this in the um, in the episode description. There is an interview on on the Seeking Derangements podcast with uh, some former Bernie campaign volunteer leaders and sort of staffers who were a bit more in charge of things and a bit more involved. And they have some interesting things to say about what happened in the campaign. Uh, there is a Twitter thread um, compiling lots and lots and lots of anecdotes yes but a lot of them with a common thread about volunteers and campaigners and activists being dismissed by the campaign leadership uh, or having their efforts and abilities misused or underused or even told not to bother um and from what i can gather the common thread seems to point to people in the campaign leadership like Faiz Shakir uh Jeff Weaver and Chuck Rocha who are all three very kind of establishment liberal ideologues when it comes to campaigning. Uh, Faisha Kier used to work for the Progress Report. Uh, <laughs> That's never a good fucking name, is it? When someone's called yeah, like yeah. The, <laughs> the Progress is... Initiative, the Justice Department. Oh, well, I suppose yeah. that's an actual thing. But uh... the, <laughs> yeah, the Progress Report near attendant is a famously liberal, like just. The, shit lib. This is the Center for American Progress, I think, is what you're referring to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Fai Shakir is the guy who famously was in an email exchange basically telling Niratan that it was a bad idea to uh, propose that after we invade Libya that they should reimburse us for the expenditure of invading them with oil money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Um, Chuck, uh, Chuck Rocha is, I believe he's a convicted fraudster for defrauding his old union of a lot of money. Yeah, something um, like twenty five k or something. But I, yeah, uh, like these. Let's people, say hello who, to our editor while we do do yet more libel. Well, we can check that, and if it's true, if he's convicted, then I think it's fine. Um, <laughs> but you know, if not, anyway, these are people who should not have been near that campaign at all, and I don't really know what. Well, happened, I mean, but... you say that, but like Jeff Weaver was, I think, the campaign manager of the two thousand sixteen one. So like, you can't just you know chuck all these guys in the same. Yeah, so. I was going to say, it's like, it's this, an entirely, entire industry that only exists to, like, air quotes, win various elections, which is, I think it requires a specific kind of broken brain in order to just say, I'm going to do this all the time for a job. Like, I, you know, I'm, because of the the job I do, I'm a bit more closer to, uh, well, I am in professional politics. That's, that's just the only way of of putting it. Um, And like, well, I don't. I think a lot of the stuff that happens in America and, and to a certain extent in the UK in terms of the consultant class, like you do need a number of those people. Like it, running elections is really fucking difficult. It's really hard. And like, it really helps if you can have some people around who know, who know the fine points legally, who know how to write, you know, an email or, or I don't know, sure. uh, you know, like there is a reason that most of them are pretty vile, but like there is a reason these people exist. So I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think the, the, the main point I'm trying to make is that it should be something more akin to a civil service than, uh, yeah, for like this, gun, uh, well, gun <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is yeah. the problem, right? So you need people to run a campaign. And we already talked about what Bernie's strength was in campaigning, right? This army of activists who were passionate and cared and and would go talk to people face to face. And after Nevada, was it? The campaign fired two thirds of the staff. And they changed the model 
from this engaged activist-based campaigning to a more depersonalized uh, way of campaigning called distributed organizing, which is like, uh, to quote the the staffer on the derangements episodes, uh, like Uber for campaigning, where it's all based on just phone banking and texting, but you don't have a personal connection with your volunteers, with your staff anymore. Um, so I think what happened is that the the campaign managers, who might have had the best intentions in the world, I don't think that really matters, they tried to run Bernie's campaign like a normal sort of liberal democratic primary campaign. The strange thing to me is that, that what I can't understand, because I listened to the same episode you were referencing, is usually when you start pushing more labor onto volunteers and saying, you know, and, and sort of training them up to do things, which is not, you know, a pointless exercise in general, but like usually that's the type of stuff you do when you run out of money, whereas Bernie was a fucking yeah. cash machine. That's that's the question people are asking. What happened? Why were the staff fired? Why did places like Michigan not have an active campaign office? The same mistake that, that Hillary made in 2016. Why did these? Why were these decisions happening? Why were they taking place? Now, some people are going to jump to it was a deliberate uh, shanking, a deliberate internal conspiracy. I think the more interesting question is to ask: What does this mean for electoral politics in the U.S.? What does it mean for the um, power, the, the institutional power of liberalism as an ideology, and how, how achievable is an electoral path for a similar type of candidate or campaign in the future? What can we take from this? I think, I think to be honest, I mean, they are, they are vastly different people, uh, before I make the comparison <laughs> between Bernie and Corbyn, but uh, I think I a common you were thread... about American versus Brits. Uh, well, I mean, I draw, draw the conclusions that you will, but <laughs> just neither of them, and this might just be down to their na- their like personal natures and just how they do politics, but they neither of them have been uh, well cutthroat or uh, ruthless as they would. I think is just necessary. Um, That's they... part of it. So we know that. Sorry, just brief parenthesis. We know that people like. Uh, Faiz were telling Bernie to not attack Biden, to not go for it. That was deliberate strategy choices to a point where the membership, the actual volunteers in the campaign were considering direct action to force the campaign leadership into a different type of tactic. Yeah, but then... Sorry, carry on. I mean, again, you know, like, I think it would be really difficult. Like, I think Bernie in any campaign has never been the one to, to, to really go, you know, fist forward. Um, that's, I think that's just not the person he is. I think it would be really, you know, I think they, they had to tread an incredibly narrow line that if they started attacking Biden, you know, the narrative on top of all the other media narratives about uh, Bernie is that, oh, you know, he's vicious and he's going negative and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and I think part of it was also sort of an, an, an attempt to say if we go in too hard on the Biden crowd, which is the, the, the sort of all the uh, African-American uh, demographic in the middle and so sort of the suburb middle class is if we do that too hard, maybe they'll stay home during the um, uh, d- during the general. So I, I've always find these things extremely hard to sort of point one way and say this is, you know, what it is. I mean, the thing about uh, the theory of Bernie's campaign was that he 
and and you know bore out in uh most of the polling that ended up coming out uh when particularly when they were doing well is the fact that he is the per- kind of person that can win over the uh yeah the non the mythical the mythical moderate republican because oh, yeah. um as with people like Joe Rogan who probably will fucking vote for Trump over Biden and that wouldn't surprise me in the slightest um so <sighs> The point with a campaign like Bernie's is that he has to take those risks and should take those risks with being aggressive with, uh, especially when it came down to just him and him and Biden, mm-hmm. uh, in order to capitalize on uh, the inherent advantage of running an atypical cam- atypical campaign. But at the same time, I suppose if he is, uh, I don't know, I don't know how, like. Uh, indelible Bernie is from the people who run his campaign. I imagine they're pretty tight knit, but it does make me wonder how uh, instructive Bernie was in running the campaign, uh, the change in step of the campaign. Hmm. There's definitely a difference between pre Super Tuesday and post Super Tuesday with campaigning. Uh, less people on the ground, less volunteers, less actual personal activism. My question is, does this signal that we can't try the same mechanism, the same electoral approach next time, or does it mean that we can try it again, we just have to not make the same mistakes? Uh, I, I suppose it's a difficult question to answer, I think, because, I mean, at the same time, where, whereas I sort of leveled the same sort of criticisms at Jeremy Corbyn, at the same time, if he was um, the ruthless uh, political machine that, uh, say, John McDonnell essentially it turned out to be, um, then he might not well have ended up getting the nominations he needed to get onto Labour's leadership ballot in 2015. Maybe Bernie's campaign, or Bernie's um, campaign for the presidency would, or for the nomination rather, would have been just cut off at the knees months before uh, he ran, even in 2016. So it's sort of a I mean, cause I, I, I would point out that, um, you know, there have been pretty intensely left candidates or like trying to go for the left candidate in uh, in primaries in America before in the Democratic Party. Uh, I think the person who comes to mind as far as having z- almost zero impact is Dennis Kucinich. Um, now, I think Kucinich was a little bit uh, more off the handle than, than Sanders was, but Kucinich ran and got no attention. Dean was to the left of Kerry for sure in 04, got basically got, got uh, effectively, I mean, my, my read on it is they sided with Kerry because they figured no one could resist a guy with medals from the war, not realizing that the Republicans don't give a <laughs> shit. And literally by the convention, they were making fun of the Purple Heart to, to own John Kerry. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you guys may not be familiar with this, but literally the big joke at the Republican convention in 04 yeah, was, was that the attendees would, would take a Band-Aid and draw a Purple Heart on it because the idea was to own John Kerry because, like, oh, he didn't actually earn his Purple Hearts. He just got them because he wanted a career in politics. And it's like, eh. So anyway, like, that that level of, the, the like, the Democratic Party has always been hostile to, to candidates from who are trying to push from the left. But I think Bernie's gotten further than anybody ever has. Mm-hmm. I also think that something that, that I think is fair to point out is that had Bernie been the nominee, I think you would have seen a level of rat fucking from the right of the party that's comparable to what you've seen in the Labour Party. Yeah, I oh, think yeah. That- well, the mm-hmm. the 
the DNC was always going to take over the campaign if, if if he became the nominee. That's how it always happens. This seems insane to us in hindsight because, like, why the fuck would you do that? Why would you give it over to people who've been actively trying to keep you out of the nomination? But that's pretty part of the core. Just as it's standard for a primary candidate to agree to eventually endorsing the person who does become the nominee. Um, so none of that is really surprising, but could it be done again? I mean, maybe let's I approach so. it from a different perspective. No. Like, 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 I, I am not going to vote for Joe Biden. I, I'm not going to. I'm, I'm registered as a Demo- as an abroad voter. Uh, I voted for Bernie in the Democrats abroad primary. I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden. I might vote for Howie Hawkins for the Green Party. Just, you know, see if they can get their uh, funding level target. But I'm not voting for Joe Biden. And I don't know if I'm going to engage in electoral politics in the U.S. in the future. I am giving money to Jess Scarani, uh, who's running in Delaware for Biden's old seat. But what would you advocate? I mean, I think, I think the one, the one thing that we can take as a concrete uh, win from uh, the entirety of Bernie's or both of Bernie's runs for the Democratic nomination is that he has opened the door to a lot of uh, left-wing, particularly compared to the rest of uh, American politicians, left-wing people entering Congress and local legislatures and everything. I mean, just like, as we talked about earlier, the squad, uh, Ocasio-Cortez and and the rest, whose names I've forgotten, uh, uh, they are the spearhead uh, at this point, I think, who are going to basically, well, (laughs) basically the people that uh, at least I've got my hopes pinned on for American politics and people who are going to follow in their wakes as well. Well, here's sort of my answer on this this stuff. I think, you know, I think there's no two ways about it. I think on both sides of the Atlantic, we've now had two candidates that we were extremely behind that we thought, you know, whatever, no policy platform is perfect, but came very close to having the sort of leftward socialist um you know shared burden agenda that was really going to do something about climate change that was going to change labor conditions that was going to really um make a material change in in the condition for a lot of people in both countries um and we failed on both accounts uh i think part of those i think the failures are unique as well i mean i think there are some themes you can draw but here's if you want to look forward and like i think we're coming up on 80 minutes so let's you know look mm-hmm. go to that bit is you don't know you know like the the bernie run in um 2016 started because he was grumpy over lunch and literally walked out and said i'm running then went back finished his sandwich and then weirdly you know he almost blew hillary clinton out of the water in 2016 Jeremy Corbyn was supposed to be the joke candidate that the left got as a sop and then blew everything out. Like, I don't know. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm not done with, with electoral politics because, I don't know, like, shit's so weird right now. And, like, you know, if you look at what's happening in the global economy at the moment, which is a different episode, but whatever, like, uh, oil has gone into negative pricing. You know, money <laughs> is essentially free. There's so much weird shit going on that, like, anybody who sort of, says i'm done like i don't know how you can say that Mm -hmm. like i think it's very reasonable to sort of be depressed for a while and say you know i can't and i really if you don't want to vote for biden you shouldn't but like you know that's 
there's always more stuff to do and fuck knows maybe tomorrow i don't know maybe tomorrow donald trump has a heart attack and mike pence finally gets caught with those two underage boys he keeps in the fridge um you know it's it's who the hell knows that's is my answer i think i think that's a i think that's a libelin done (laughs) those no see those boys are made out of bread they are sculptures made of bread from when the first time him and his wife went feeding the ducks on their first date (laughs) so it's not libel to say that mike mike pence who i'm not joking took the heel of the loaf of bread that he and his wife used to feed the ducks and had it bronzed and made into a trophy that he keeps on his wall what 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 Uh, I'm so right. what the what the fuck are you <laughs> yeah. telling me right now? <laughs> Mike Pence. Mike Pence is a uh, lunatic. Born, born and raised in Indiana, uh, yeah. my home state. He's raised Catholic and then converted to be an evangelical Protestant. Uh, he and his wife went on their first date together to feed ducks at a pond, and he saved the loaf of bread, the remnants of it, from their first date because he 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 wanted to keep a memento. He had that loaf of bread bronzed. And now it's like a like a trophy that he has at his house. Also, Correct. he calls his wife mother. Yes, and he does. Yeah, he, <laughs> I and, I and he, he doesn't allow himself to be alone with another woman in 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 a room, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> also, Mike Pence got his start in politics by being an insane right wing conservative radio host on like an AM chat station and enough enough of his listeners said you should run for office so he did so what i'm saying is there's hope <laughs> for us maybe any one of us could be the future of yeah, electoral oh politics God, if we- well I, 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 if we, if there's nothing we haven't learned if there's something we have must have learned is that uh right wingers play politics on easy mode i mean yeah. <laughs> i think that's pretty much uniform uh, across the Anglosphere. Yeah, really, but they do it. If they not, do, if not universally. But then they do that now. You know, like twenty years ago, thirty, maybe forty years ago. Now, you know, for them it was really playing on hard mode, and just the times change, and the economics change, and the material conditions change, and you know, for now, forty years ago, you could. Uh, what was the famous phrase? Like you could stick a rosette on a on a dead cat in in certain parts of in in. Oh, it was a pig, of, I think. In, in the north of England, <laughs> and they would still get in because they were wearing the labor rosette. So you know, again, it's this, the struggle is still there, and the possibilities are still there. It's just, I don't know. Well, I mean, that's it's it's. Just to pivot on that mention of labor, uh, so Nate, in the uh, Trash Feature episode about the labor report, uh, I believe someone made the argument that laborism, uh, the the ideology or belief system that the interests of the working class are, are best achieved uh, by voting for the Labour Party in parliamentary elections, is dead or should die. Yeah, that's a pretty My, fair assessment. I mean, yeah, okay. Well, so... I I would tend to agree in the UK, and I what I'm interested in is whether we can apply that as a parallel to the US. Is is a uh, is is democratic partisanism dead or or dying? I Was think, it ever even a thing? I think that shifting the bloated corpse of the Democratic Party out of its, uh, you know, seats of power is a bigger ask in uh the very uh what's the word immobile american political system uh compared to uh, like <laughs> first past the post is shit but like it's somehow more fluid and changeable than uh the american system like um with the you know rise of the smp uh would in theory just not be possible if we had a system similar to the u.s so uh mm-hmm. so basically I, I mean like what typically happens in american politics throughout 
history is if new parties become viable, they just get absorbed by bigger parties. Like there have been different parties throughout the, you know, the centuries, but invariably, you know, one has a party has absorbed the other. The, the Whigs went away. The progressives got mm. absorbed into the Democrats or, to, or actually into the, the Republicans um, because the Republicans were the left party until the civil rights yeah. movement. Um, the, 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 the thing I would point out is that I think given that while first past the post does make it hard, it does. It's not impossible for a new party to do well in America. It's basically impossible above what you might say, like the like local election level. Every now and again, you'll have an independent politician do well. Sanders is obviously a great example of that throughout his career. Uh, some examples of it not going well are when the former WWE wrestler Jesse the Body Ventura <laughs> was elected the governor of Minnesota. <laughs> Uh, that didn't. Oh, end he's well. running. Did you see this? He's running for president. Oh, really? Is he? Well, yeah. I mean, so okay, is Berman well, so Supreme, you have though. So maybe it's it. just like. He's, uh, <laughs> Jesse Ventura is considering uh, launching a bid for president with the Green Party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, so, so the point I would make here is that I think that in the UK, the possibility exists, like, put it this way. The possibility exists for extra party organization as far as like local organizing around things that matter to people. And that can probably lead to uh, a better that, that that could lead to a shift in like the terms of debate. But what we've learned mm. from the Corbyn era is that it's extremely challenging, if not impossible, to uh, unseat unpopular, you know, flown in candidates in labor constituencies. Like deselecting candidates is almost fucking impossible unless they've, you know, done something really weird. Like what was the guy's name? Keith Vaz, I think. The one who, oh, God. Or the, the MP who was like, was paying male escorts to fuck him and stuff like that. Like barring that, it's very hard to, to unseat. Whereas in, in the US, every candidate has a primary. So it's easier to take over a party in America than it is uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, whether or not that's not really popular or possible at the national level. Uh, there were some efforts, for example, in some organizing in California to really uh, get involved to try to push the terms of debate. And they pushed forward a, a bill for universal health care, like single payer coverage in California. And if I remember correctly, the Democratic legislature just like shut down and went home instead of having to listen to it. I do remember <laughs> seeing a video of what basically would be described as protesters, you know, decrying this and some elder functionary of the California Democratic Party basically turning off his hearing aid and saying, go fuck yourselves. Um, <laughs> So the point being, it's harder to do it at the national level, but it is more plausible for a kind of hostile takeover politically of a party in the U.S. than in the U.K. In the U.K., you have the opposite where you have if UKIP looks like it's going to do well, the conservatives just become UKIP. Yeah, I mean, you saw that with the Tea Party in the U.S., didn't we? Like the, I mean, fucking uh... the, the the speaker, the, the the House Majority Leader. Eric Cantor lost his seat to yeah, some yeah, dipshit, some fucking, law, fucking some yeah. some law professor named Dave Bratt, whose private whose previous qualifications up to that point was basically running like a blog about owning the libs, like, and he suddenly replaced. <laughs> it was it was sort of the Ocasio Cortez of the right kind of moment. Now, if I remember correctly, <laughs> Bratt uh, either lost his seat, stepped down, something. He's not in Congress anymore, but uh, but that that was a huge moment. You know, the Republicans. Their base was like, we want to set our hair on fire and scream about Muslimic death rays. 
uh, you can never vote for anything Obama's legislature proposes. And the Republicans went with it, whereas the Democrats mm -hmm. go into in, in, in their current leadership, go into any negotiation, basically being like, all right, we'll give everything away. What do you want, Republicans? <laughs> yeah. And so that, to me, yeah. I think is the big problem is that, like, you're going to need to do some institutional replacement yeah. because as it stands, you've got fucking Chuck Schumer, my, I guess, current senator, because I'm still registered to vote in New York, and Nancy Pelosi, you know, an octogenarian hundred millionaire from fucking that Marin fucking County, California. With her in, with her $15,000 fridge with the ice cream and it was just amazing. Uh, yeah, they do, they love uh, just doing horrendous shit that is going to end up being, let's face it, very effective fucking uh, attack ads against them. Like the um, uh, was it who was it that uh, quote tweeted that uh, advert with uh, the the Trump advert with Pelosi in it, uh, oh, yeah, and yeah. was then getting told off by honchos in the DNC about boosting the president of the United States? Like that was. Uh... <laughs> That was Neera Tandon. Neera Tandon, yeah, 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 that's it. Everything yeah. always comes back to Neera. Someone, uh, yeah. someone just had a pop at Neera and yeah. she went off for boosting the president. fucking president. No, I think, um, think now, um, of, of what you were saying is, you know, we, we, in both cases, we either got or came very close to sort of doing the whole thing in one go. Like we were, we were going to sort of leapfrog in parts the local and the, the, you know, and go straight for the big prize, i.e. Jeremy Corbyn as PM or, or Bernie Sanders as president. And I think we came extraordinarily close. I think much, if you would look at it over like a 10, 20 year time frame, like this is way closer than I think we would have thought we would have gotten. And, you know, maybe we, we, keep, we keep our eyes peeled to the horizon because, like I said, weird things genuinely do happen. But maybe we, we build it the other way around. And especially in the US, that just means local organizing and it's going to be block by block, council by council. And, you know, maybe that's that's the way forward. And yeah, it might take it might take 20 more years. And, you know, I think we have to be realistic. Just do militant again, you know, uh, we'll, we'll all become trots. Oh, finally. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. Well, OK, if <laughs> so, just to sort of wrap up, I have. A couple of thoughts I'd like to just proffer and sort of see what you think about it. To clarify about my not voting for Biden, it's not that I'm like fully done with engaging in, 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 in any idea of electoral politics in the US. I just think there should be consequences for an, an, an obvious rat fucking. And I also have um, deep concern that if Biden does win, he'll just set the scene for a more competent fascist to come after him. Um, it is possible to get worse than Trump. But mm. I think something that we've, one of the conclusions I'd like to draw from the things we've seen about the Bernie Sanders campaign and, and some of the problems there, I think on the left, when we engage in electoral politics, we lack a kind of institutional memory. We lack a structural memory because we haven't been doing it as long as the centrists and the right wingers. And we haven't had degrees of success as prominent as Corbyn's and Bernie's in quite a while so there's a level of novelty to it and we're not quite sure how best to engage we don't have like a set of rules down we don't really have a learned instinct on on how to engage with electoralism that is inherently antithetical to our sort of policy platform um and so i think what we need to start doing is developing this structural memory right here right now so that means looking at 2016 for Sanders, it means looking at 2017 for Corbyn, looking at 2019 for Corbyn, and looking at 2020 for Sanders, 
and drawing out what could we have done better because it's 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 great to be aware of how the establishment is going to try to fuck you with 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 media bias with selective coverage with democratic suppression but it's also very important to know what we could have done better and i think for corbyn that's pretty clear uh, given the leaked report you purge your enemy factions you you maintain and consolidate power inside the party for yourself uh for bernie i think we're still learning but i think we do have some very promising um ideas and some lessons in terms of the fact that getting out there having enthusiastic people campaign for you and going to talk face to face directly with people and organizing the working class still does work and that there is space for old fashioned sort of labor union activism um within the electoral system that being said i also think it's very very important that we become better at doing extra parliamentarian and outside electoral activities so i would i my suggestions my recommendations would be uh go look up local co-ops see if you can do anything to create a kind of better working environment for the people in your community and in your family and friends and uh when you do engage in electoralism uh be a leninist and own it <laughs> that's my that that's my lesson from it purge the enemy consolidate power and go out directly and appeal to the voters that you need and that you want and be ruthless i mean i think uh, it also bears uh, mentioning uh with regards to um like mutual aid and things like that and protesting like the birth of corbynism was founded in the early 2010s so like the coalition government from the like the anti austerity and uh, anti student fees uh movements and although at the time arguably uh didn't nece- necessarily change anything that still provided uh you know the opening that was necessary in UK politics to actually allow him to run and that is something that needs to be borne in mind when you feel like you aren't necessarily achieving anything right now. That's yeah, that's a very good point. That's be part of movements, keep doing things. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right, uh we're 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 coming up on an hour and a half. Do we have any any closing thoughts? I just thought I'm 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 fairly optimistic. I was really mad when I first saw the 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 stuff about the Sanders campaign, but I've come to terms with it and I'm optimistic for the future. I'm so, I'm optimistic, uh, but I think you should also be mad. I think rage is a very rage and spite and hatred are very good motivators. Agreed. Yeah, but then I can't Yeah, but then I can't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't exactly feel great after reading the leaked labor report. Uh but I mean I none of it was a surprise in the sense of the overall concept. It was more the details and just the fuckery and the extent to which they they were they were heartbroken to for labor to have done well when you think about how much work everyone put yeah. into that that made me very angry but obviously it's like like you said i mean that's politics we have to stay involved you can't you can't get so i mean the the the, the perfect scenario for the blairite faction is that labor wins and only 10 percent of people turn out to vote yeah you know like it's basically <laughs> like the new york democratic party is their fucking dream so like don't let them oh, have that God. that's what i'm saying don't let them have that because you know that that is just not a good thing uh that that's worse for democracy uh if you want once again a caveat if you want to call it that 
Um, and ultimately, if I have to leave you with anything, it's that, uh, you know, I always say, and I said this after Corbin lost, that we never know what's going to happen. And it always seems like the right plays politics on easy mode. But when it comes to individual people getting fucked over, at least every now and again, we get lucky and that some of the worst people wind up fucking tripping on their own dicks and they're no longer <laughs> part of the political scene. I think, for example, think of if you want to put on your, your, your memory hats with me right now, think about the utter fucking smugness of the Tories when they won in 2015. Just the utter unbelievable smugness of A, winning, B, not needing the Lib Dems anymore, and C, beating the polls because all the polls said that uh, Miliband was set to win by like four or five points. So that happened. And then Corbyn won. And they were so fucking smug about that, too. You think about like the PMQs, the way that Cameron talked about, mm. about Corbyn. And then literally like a year and some change after Cameron, you know, won without the coalition in 2015, he was looking fucking bloated faced, crying in the front of number 10 because of the Brexit referendum. And now he's gone. Now, of course, we live in hell because of Brexit, but at least Cameron got kicked in the dick. <laughs> All right. So every yeah. now and then bad things can happen to your enemies and you want that to happen. You want you want to do good things for people and you want bad things to happen to your enemies. And I just say, don't give up, because if you give up, then it'll all be just noise. If you're oh, still yeah. involved, when somebody trips and falls, falls down, trips on a banana peel and falls down the stairs and hilariously their political career implodes because I don't know, like they couldn't stop fucking pigs or whatever, like it's always amazing. And so you want, you want those moments of joy when those, the worst people on the planet get destroyed. And for that to happen, you've, you've got to pick a side. And also, I would, fight, yeah. uh, go on, go on. And also uh, every, I didn't live in the United Kingdom until 2018, but everybody that I know that uh, lived here in the early to mid two thousands said like, it was just the most grim, hopeless political environment you could possibly imagine. So I really don't want to see us go back to that. Because unless my circumstances changes, I think I'm fucking stuck here. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good message to be in politics, not for, you know, universal health care or helping the working class, but for the... For the lulls and the shit posts, I think that's something we can all kind of aspire to. No, I mean it's uh, ancillary, no, but it's important. It's yeah, <laughs> no, the big goals I'm, are still important. You know, it's this is just one of the many methods of how yeah, you that, can do these things. That's an example of trying some levity. Sorry, mm-hmm. that that missed the mark. Okay, never mind. No, I'm with you. Do pick a side. I'm. I get every day a little bit less interested in like principles and i'm more like yeah i will i I will do things to help my interests and my and and my values and i will do things that go against yours and if you know um the idea that there's these big sort of unifying bonding human experience ideals that we can all sort of come together as just leaves me very very dry um but yeah it's it's heartening that we have somewhere to go, I think, is 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 what I've been mulling over. Yeah, and well, we'll find, the fight we'll is find, never over. Exactly, we'll find I mean, somewhere to go. It's it's fine. It's cool. And in the meantime, I don't know. Listen to podcasts. Keep listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you are a U.S. citizen, I would suggest that uh, if you have cancelled your recurring Bernie Sanders donation and would like to stick it somewhere else, I would suggest uh, looking up Jess Scarani, who's running for. Uh, she, she's running in Delaware for Joe Biden's old seat. She's a very good left person with with solid uh, values. Um, if you are looking for something to do closer to home, 
look for a local co-op, look for a local organizing group. There's people doing all kinds of really cool shit from running bars and cafes to, to growing food. Obviously not right now because we're all stuck inside. Um, <laughs> but in general, you can do things at a local level that will make the immediate lives of your community and your neighbors and your friends just a little bit better. And you should go do that. And, can I throw something you, out there too? Yep. There's a guy who, if you follow Trash Future, uh, we had our live stream on election night where we all got owned. Um, and one of the people <laughs> who called in is a friend, uh, this guy named Brian. He's an organizer in North Carolina. He's on Twitter. Uh, his handle is at Cato of Utica. Brian is involved in labor activism in North Carolina in the South. North Carolina is a Southern state. The South, the entire Southern region of the United States is one big anti-union campaign. So he has a really fucking thankless job. And yet... He has not lost hope. He's constantly in the struggle. I, I would say like people definitely follow him, but people like that. Like there are folks out there. They may not be on Twitter, but they're out there doing the work and like they need whatever assistance you can give. And maybe you can't give your, your, your physical presence. Maybe you can give a little bit of money. Maybe you can help in some way. But like there, there are folks who instead of getting blackpilled on Twitter are just doing the work and like they need our support. That's not to say you shouldn't listen to my podcast and this podcast because <laughs> obviously, you know, you, you, have to, you have to laugh at my dumb jokes and me recycling old memes through like dad brain. But I'm just saying, there's, I, I am not yet blackpilled. I'm frustrated as hell. I'm angry as shit. I'm constantly red. But I'm not blackpilled yet. Well, Nate, what you have to remember is with this podcast, it's in the name. So uh, podcasting is, in fact, practice now. <laughs> it is indeed. It is indeed. It's the only thing. It's the only thing. Okay. But, you know, Whatever. We'll get through this one, and we'll find another goal, and we'll find another victory. Because well, on that note, it feels like a. I think that's feels a like a place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Nate, do you want to plug your your podcast and stuff? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. So, so um, obviously, uh, we've mentioned Trash Future a bunch of times. I am the co-host, a co-host, and the producer of that show. I also uh, produce a show that's basically a focus on military and veterans news and culture from an explicitly left-wing anti-war socialist perspective. It's called what a hell of a way to die. Uh, listen to that. It's just me and one other guy who are both leftist veterans. We talk quite a bit about, uh, if you want to follow on dumb news about the American military, please listen to that show. Uh, you'll hear all about trillion dollar boats that break when they get wet. and other things. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank, thanks for coming on Nate. It was uh, great to yeah. have you. You're welcome. Thanks guys. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, keep the fight going. Stay upright. We'll get through this one yet. This has been Podcasting is Praxis. Have a good night. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.